Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, it is part two of the Theological Interpretation Conversation. If you didn't hear part one with Madison Pierce, go back to listen to that first. Today, I talk with Chad Spellman as a follow-up to that from somebody who works in the sort of biblical theology and canon studies world to talk a little bit more about the relationship between the Bible, theology, hermeneutics, church history, and all these things that get wrapped up together as we think about theological interpretation of Scripture. So I hope you'll enjoy my conversation with Ched. As always, we're brought to you by B&H Academic. Go to bhacademic.com to find out about all their latest offerings. You can also check out our other sponsor, the Christian Standard Bible, csbible.com. And now, my conversation with Ched Spellman. But first, no big deal. Ted Spellman, my friend, my colleague, uh, you were not willing to come sit in the same room with me and do this. So we are Zooming from, I think I could possibly see your house if good I were to step outside. Good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> uh, Chad and I are going to do a little bit of a follow-up to uh, my conversation with Madison about the Wycliffe Colloquium and particularly the conversation around theological interpretation. So what Madison and I talked about was sort of the past, present, and future of theological interpretation. Where does it come from? Where's it going? What do we hope for it to be? And one of the things that we talked about a lot was whatever TIS becomes, whatever TIS we want to be a part of, if we are, we want it to be something that is deeply exegetical and textual, you know, where it's, something, where it's not always the case in TIS, at least not in the way maybe I would think of it. So I thought about bringing uh, Chad on as well so that we can talk through this. Chad, uh, world-class, world-renowned expert, on canon studies as the author of canon consciousness the coiner of the term canon consciousness the one who has uh, changed the field forever and so i thought who better than to have you on chad well i'd first like to start by denouncing and denying everything you just said (laughs) and Uh, i'd also just in terms of coming on the the um the big podcast the capital c church grammar I'd like to maintain a posture of epistemic humility. So I'd like to say first, mm. Mm. no big deal. Ooh, I like that. See that now that's, that's when I know that you really do listen that's, sometimes. Now I'm a first time caller, long time listener, Brandon. <laughs> this is actually your, your second time and also your second time to make that joke. So um, your consistency is great. Well, so. okay. Well, <laughs> I'm actually a little confused this time because I thought you were going to have me on the podcast. Um, to discuss my hermeneutical hip-hop album that's dropping. Yeah, I think we'll wait for it to actually come out. I'll see how it's received, and if it's received well, we'll come back around. I think that's the best way to do it. Not even a preview? No, I don't think so. Um, I've got, I've already got no big deal. I've been propping up his career for years, you know, so. I had, I had some lines ready, but that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> All right, Chad, so let's, let's, start, uh, let's start before the reviewers get after me again for gratuitous small talk, uh, as one of my Amazon reviewers said. The chit-chatty so, podcast yeah. genre. Yeah, we don't like that. Um, so would you consider yourself, I've actually never asked you this as many times, I mean, I feel like we, we sometimes talk for hours uh, a week about some of these kind of things, among other things that will not make it on this episode of Church Grammar. Yeah. Um, do you consider yourself broadly 
a part of the TIS world or movement with the canonical biblical theological stuff that you do? Um, yeah, I mean, I think this hits to the uh, the nature of the, or at least the current um, iteration of the conversation um, is de depends on what you mean by theological interpretation. Right. Um, so I think uh, broadly conceived, uh, my understanding of theological interpretation in the last 20 years in the academy um, is... I want to circle back around to why it's helpful to distinguish between theological interpretation in the academy and then in the churches. But um, it seems like uh, in the academy, theological interpretation involved uh, some sort of uh, general uh, hesitance uh, with a historical critical paradigms. So I think if there was one, uh, one just beginning feature of theological interpretation is a move away from the hegemony or the um, stranglehold that historical critical studies has had on um, New Testament, Old Testament studies. And, that, and that's a loaded term, but uh, not necessarily a stranglehold, but just the predominance of a historical critical reading. So a group of uh, various approaches pushing back on um, a historical account of the New Testament or the Old Testament or biblical studies um, as a, you know, kind of unifying feature. So, uh, but that's uh, not really saying uh, too much at this, the beginning, other than kind of a movement, move away from the predominance of a historical critical reading. Um, so in that sense, uh, the, if if the if the choice is between a historical purely historical critical approach and um, something else, uh, a canonical approach would certainly uh, be in that vein of uh, not necessarily eschewing all things history, uh, but prioritizing the final form of the biblical text as the starting point uh, and ending point of the uh, interpretive process. So I think in those broad terms. Uh, the theological interpretation of scripture helps carve out a space within the academy uh, for someone thinking about uh, a Trinitarian reading of the New Testament or thinking about canonical shape um, or a whole host of other questions. Um, and I think some of the pushback on theological interpretation of scripture as a movement is beyond a rejection of historical critical readings, is there any coherence to uh, the project. Mm -hmm. So uh, the book, a, a helpful book in this regard, I think, is the Manifesto for Theological Interpretation. Uh, one of the helpful um, helpful parts of that project is they're seeking to demonstrate that theological interpretation of scripture is by nature interdisciplinary. So you have biblical studies, uh, somebody doing canon studies, somebody doing a philosophical angle, of course, theology, um, embeddedness within the church life. Um, so in that sense, showing that it's in, in broad sense, ecumenical and interdisciplinary, and then the uh, concomitant uh, pushback would be, it seems like this is more than one thing. Yeah. Um, so not a manifesto for theological interpretation, but perhaps... Uh, manifestos uh, for this, because each discipline, uh, while holding on to some uh, pretty clear central parameters, is still kind of articulating all of the emphases and um, parameters 
of what theological interpretation is um, according to you know their uh, legitimate interest. Um, so I think in that sense, interdisciplinary um, uh, project, but still uh, seeking to um, interpret scripture uh, from its multifaceted angles. So yeah, yeah, and even when we talk about you know we talk about historical critical, and we're sort of talking about uh, you know the you know, historical backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, the world of the Bible, the, the world that the biblical authors were writing in. And you get into even canon studies, you know, there's also the uh, manifestos for canonical theology, right? Like, what do you mean by canon? So, um, you know, so that, that's a whole other discussion that's related because, you know, as we were talking before with the Wycliffe Colloquium, what they were doing was sort of um, uh, giving a eulogy for the Brazos theological commentary series. And that one's everything from, you know, a Moberly Old Testament uh, sort of uh, approach, uh, Durham approach, if you want to call it that. And then you've got Dan Trier doing something on Proverbs. Then you've got, you know, Christopher Seitz, and they're all just doing different things even within that movement. Um, so I think for you and I both, we like both what, you know, a Trier or a Van Hooser are doing in terms of the sort of more systematic theology and thinking about those categories when you're reading the text. And also like the sites approach, which is, it does have a little bit more of the historical, critical, historical, grammatical, whatever kind of background, a little bit more biblical studies based. So how, how do you think through and sort of talk through the relationship between systematic theology, theological, uh, doctrinal commitments as reading the text, and then the other side of sort of doing the historical, literary, grammatical type stuff? What what's some of the just kind of big picture things you think of in that world? Um, yeah, I think the... Um the the relationship between biblical and theological studies is um there's a little bit of a cottage industry now of raising the question and then arguing for some way to bring them together obviously there's lots of uh studies and work done that is staying in those lanes but i think theological interpretation uh, as a concept uh, does at the very least, in terms of aspirations, pull those together um, as you're thinking about uh, the, the theological reality that the scriptures point to or that they speak of, and then also the uh, phenomena of the biblical text, of the different genres, um, the uh, rootedness and embeddedness in uh, the way that the scriptures unfold, uh, literary features. Um, so I think one of the challenges to this discussion, at least in evangelical scholarship, uh, and even more broadly, is that allowing, um, allowing each discipline to define uh, its own, uh, allow each discipline to define its task. Mm -hmm. um, so sometimes the systematic theology, uh, systematic theologians are defining biblical theology and then critiquing it, and then you have <laughs> biblical theology biblical theologians uh, giving the definition for uh, dogmatics or systematic theology. Whereas you, this is where I think sometimes the caricatures of systematic theology is only proof texting. And then from the other side though, biblical theology is only a regurgitation of the biblical storyline. Mm -hmm. And I think both of those are thin descriptions of what uh, the disciplines at their best are doing. So what I'm interested in is a robust understanding of exegesis a robust understanding of the biblical theology and a robust understanding of systematic theology um, so that systematic theology doesn't get 
earmarked as um, superficial Bible doctrine and biblical theology doesn't just get earmarked as either a summary of redemptive history, which it can be, um, and then also, um, or exegesis as just, you know, reading, just reading the text without uh, any uh, concept of its coherence uh, with other biblical statements. And so I think the best of each discipline is already naturally uh, configured toward uh, one another. Mm -hmm. And I'd say those three in particular, because I think if you define the scriptures as uh, God's word to his people, that has a historical, theological, and uh, literary element, then if you are grappling with text, you're always going to be asking this question. Um, and so I think that's where you can see a family resemblance in uh, different approaches throughout the great tradition and even uh, today. But there's certainly uh, ways in which you can define each discipline that would make them seem totally incompatible or one or the other end of the spectrum be completely superfluous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another thing you kind of brought up there in passing is, you know, the element of resourcement and retrieval and sort of how do we draw the best from the Christian tradition? So obviously, uh, not obviously to some people, but obviously to you, this is something that I've been trying to do in my work and my dissertation and, and hopefully doing more is thinking through how can we appropriate and retrieve uh, the best of what the Christian tradition has offered when it comes to theological categories and conceptual tools. Uh, so you kind of come a little bit more from the biblical study side, but I, I mean, you, you teach our class here, for example, on you teach a hermeneutics class, you teach a history of biblical interpretation, you teach Christian theology one, which is scripture and Trinity basically. So you're, you're interacting with all those same worlds. So in what ways do you see the benefits of retrieval in, in this conversation? And then what are some, maybe some, problems you've seen or some concerns that you've seen in terms of what that actually looks like because retrieval gets a bad rap in some biblical studies things because it's like hey they, they don't care about the text or they're just doing theology or that's a different context so what do you think about some of that yeah i think the way you describe that uh, for me uh, the danger of being interdisciplinary is that you don't have a discipline <laughs> which some could extrapolate like yourself towards me that I don't have any discipline. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I meant. A discipline or any discipline. That, that's exactly what I was going for. I was just trying to insult you. So yes, I mean, that's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah, I think that uh, one of the things that's been helpful is uh, Brevard Childs talks about uh, in the history of interpretation, talking about a family resemblance. Um, so in some ways, um, I think uh, Childs is able to absorb the critique of someone like James Barr, who looks at his discussion of Irenaeus, um, uh, Calvin, Luther, and even Aquinas as biblical theologians uh, in arguing, if you understand biblical theology as, um, as located within a history of religions or uh, in using historical critical tools, then it would be absurd to talk about the early church or uh, any of the history of interpretation up to that point as doing biblical theology. But if you uh, think through the uh, nature of biblical theology um, differently, it's primary task. So if Childs begins his uh, magnum opus defining biblical theology as the study of the theological relationship between the testaments, and if that is the core out of which other uh, commitments follow, 
then there's a family resemblance between what Childs is trying to do, think about the theology of the Old and New Testament in light of its historical development, but also in the implications of its final form, but then moving towards grappling with its subject matter, uh, the triune God of the two Testament witness, um, then you're going to have a family resemblance to someone like Irenaeus, who is um, what we could consider one of the first canonical interpreters uh, who is in this, in this manner grappling with how do we talk about the big picture of the Bible? Um, how do we articulate the gospel of Jesus Christ in light of a two Testament witness? Um, and so I think this is, uh, you know, it, this is constructive for Irenaeus, but also um, uh, apologetic in the sense of the reason why you wouldn't want to uh, go the route of Marcion is because it's a two Testament witness. You have to have the Old Testament and the uh, Jewish elements of the New Testament. And then the same thing with combating Gnosticism. There's a reason what the reason why you wouldn't fill uh, this biblical language with a different framework is because the way the words go uh, points to and pressures us. These are all uh, concepts from, you know, canon studies, um, pressures us, coerces us, encourages us to view the God of the New Testament as the God of the Old Testament. Um, so thinking about um, this impulse, that if you're doing a purely historical critical uh, program, this would be a radical imposition of theological content. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're thinking about the final form, uh, this is, these are some of the connections that are surfaced uh, by the text itself. And so I think that's one of the really exciting things about a canonical approach uh, is that uh, at some point in your study, uh, site says something like this a lot, uh, the canonical portrayal, the canonical um, uh, shape of redemptive history is there mm -hmm. and it's putting pressure on you. <laughs> you go to the prophets and you find the prophets standing there, the prophetic book, uh, asking you to read it on its own terms, uh, and see its message in light of its, uh, structure, in light of its literary, uh, features, in light of its, uh, metaphorical, uh, world. Um, and so, um, I think that's something that is a interesting uh, contribution to the theological interpretation of scripture discussion because um, we're constantly asking what is it about uh, the biblical text that requires uh, a multitude of disciplines? What is it that requires uh, both theology and exegesis and text criticism? You know, what pulls it all together? And at the center is always, at the end of the day, if we are studying this particular collection of texts, we're, we're going to have to grapple with these types of, um, of issues. So, and I think like what you're doing in uh, Revelation is, is, is hitting at that too, thinking about texts, but also implications, but also um, history of interpretation. Um, so, I mean, I think I see there's a family resemblance between what uh, I'm interested in what um, evangelicals are interested in, what the great tradition is. Uh, I think there's a lot there for us to mine um, yeah. without without doing it as you know poor <laughs> proof texting church history, uh, yeah. just like we would want to guard against proof texting you know Romans. 
yeah, or proof texting uh, Romans in light of uh, Homer or something, right? You got the sort of right. other side yeah. where it's like, I can only understand John if I understand all of the other Jewish apocalypses, you know, so it's like, yeah. it goes both ways. Yeah, and it can, it, it, depending on the scholarly trend or the uh, framework, you know, the can you understand Romans without the Romans, um, <laughs> the social political um, situation? Um, and then if so, or if not, how does that work? What is the relationship between um, those things? So I think uh, both theological interpretation of scripture and canon studies is is trying to pull some of those things together in an, in an organic way. Yeah, I think uh, I, I didn't want to pass over the fact there that you, you know, you've read my work, you've given me good feedback on my dissertation, have been very helpful. And you were like so close to a compliment there that I got really excited. And then I remembered that's just not, it's not I what you do. Yeah, you rolled it back. You got, you're like, this is what you're, that's kind of what you're thinking about maybe doing well in your dissertation. So I, I appreciate that you're, you went down the road, but. I see what you're trying to do. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, if you push me, I would say that your vernacular is also spectacular. <laughs> um, yeah, you were bringing up the semantic, uh, you know, the pressure and the coercion of the text and that kind of thing. That's something that I found really helpful in thinking through how to do theology from the scriptures. Like I'm more of a systematic guy, more of an historical theology guy that want, that cares about the text. And, um, you know, part of reading Revelation is not just, okay, how do I shoehorn the Trinity into this text, but recognizing the fact that there's a, it's kind of native to the, to the text already. Right. And that like, uh, one of the notes that I made in my dissertation was, you know, even the people who deny the Trinitarian reading of Revelation are having to deal with the fact that Jesus appears to be worshiped or, you know, they're already, they're dealing with the fact that there's some sort of Trinitarian dynamic already at play and whether they're accepting or not is, is fine. But it's not just this random thing that's come from out here, but actually the text is is uh, pressuring you in some sense, or your reading of the text is pressuring you to think about, well, what do I do with this? You know, right. and so I think that's that that's that's the history of interpretation. I mean, that's what basically everybody has done. You know, is trying to be faithful, or supposed to be trying to be faithful readers of the text. And so um, there's a really good quote from Adonis Vidu's new, new book on inseparable operations, where he says. Um, Trinitarian theology is best understood as mining the semantic depth of the scriptures, mm -hmm. right? That like you're actually, it's actually coming from the text. And so when you're talking about canonical theology, for example, in the two Testament witness and this kind of thing, you know, sites, for example, is drawing on this idea that that is not merely a historical statement. Like, Oh, here's these 66 books that happen to be together. There's a, a theological element because you're acknowledging God's revelation. You're, you're, you're acknowledging, uh, like you said, how the, the book kind of tells you to read it. I mean, that's the thing I always try to point to students is like, if you read the Pentateuch, like the Pentateuch, the, the author of the Pentateuch, we'll say Moses because we're crazy fundies, but you know, whoever it is uh, that, that's uh, reading the Pentateuch, like it's so self-referential, you know, like it's telling you like, you, well, if you know this story, you'll know this story. And then Jesus kind of comes along and he's being so referential, like, well, if you had read the Old Testament, you would know this. If you knew the scriptures, you'd know this. So um, what are some of the things you think through when it comes to the relate that relationship? Um, because I think that's where sometimes where the rubber meets the road, right? What do you think about the final form of the text, as you says, like what well, the canon that we have, the 66 books that we as Protestants say are authoritative, uh, that that is automatically a theological statement, unless we just want to treat every book as a, you know, friendly or enemy to each other and competing with each other. Mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the ways that you think through that theological element of the sort of final form, the canon, the way the words go, the intertextuality, that kind of stuff? Because you, you've helped me think through that stuff a lot. So I think it'd be helpful for other people to hear. 
Yeah, sure. I want to first uh, take a moment to note that because this is audio, you can't see me nodding. Mm, mm. Just saying, mm, mm. That's just how I do it. You know, I'm, yeah. you know, that's my, my cultural location of <laughs> boring, uh, boring white man. That is how I affirm you. And yeah. I, I'm doing that. There know? were no hand waves, but those are the compliments. Those are the compliments. So I'm a complimentarian in that sense. Oh, I like it. Um, uh, yeah, I think the I, I like the way that you uh, kind of got into that of thinking about uh, a lot of times. One of the things that I, I like to emphasize is um, when I like to talk about canon studies and canonical approach. Um, in, in many ways, uh, I'm not talking about a specific uh, um, or, or a uh, finely uh, tuned a specific way about going uh, going about reading. Um, oftentimes, it's a, a series of concerns that I'm bringing to the text. Mm -hmm. um, so as I'm thinking, I do think it's helpful as we're thinking about uh, uh, an evangelical approach to the scriptures, uh, seeing some sort of unity that that is already a um, feature. Uh, it's already a theological commitment when we're thinking about the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So even if you reject a particular uh, significance for a uh, arrangement of, you know, a canonical grouping, uh, you're still drawing on uh, the produce of the canon. Um, so even if you're thinking about, um, I think a lot of times evangelicals, uh, while maybe not having an explicit uh, canon consciousness there's a canon subconsciousness where mm -hmm. when if you say tell me the story of redemptive history and then all of a sudden you begin in the beginning when god created the heavens and the earth and then you move to the story of adam and eve and cain and abel and you're talking about the uh, tracking the descendants of a single individual abraham isaac and jacob and seeing that as the shape of redemptive history well that is a canonical uh, move. The reason why we think about redemptive history in this way is because of the pressure put upon us by an authoritative text that we affirm. Um, so um, in some ways, a canonical approach can be as simple, uh, as, simple as that, as thinking about the theological uh, and her, uh, as well as the hermeneutical effect of reading individual uh, books within uh, the scope of a collection. Um, and you can see that when you think about, um, and this isn't necessarily a value judgment, but the difference between a different starting point, a critical or a purely history of religions paradigm, where that is actually what is ruled out from the beginning, um, is thinking about the story of redemptive history from beginning to end. So, you know, when we say um, we're not just talking about history, we're talking about his story, mm, mm. about um, well, here we're talking about the function of divine providence, uh, the way that God works in the world. Um, this is a underlying presupposition that is required for um, intertextual reference, theological, um, uh, typological, or figural reading, uh, or just in general, this idea that um, when we, yeah, as evangelicals, we talk about a Genesis to Revelation storyline. Um, we're drawing upon um, the final form of the biblical canon that begins at the very least with Genesis and ends with the vision of the end in Revelation. Um, so with 
thousands of texts in between. Um, and I think that's part of the, at the base, uh, when we're thinking about the relationship between final form and interpretation is recognizing that that's not a literary grab bag. Um, it's not like uh, Mary Poppins's bag that she just kind of pulls all kinds of stuff out. <laughs> um, but that there's that, you know, when she's pulling out of uh, uh, Mary Poppins bag, there out comes a collection, um, <laughs> right? Out comes a, uh, a, a series of things that are connected. I, the metaphor is broken down. I know that <laughs> still felt magical when it was, when it was happening. It was, uh, but it's less like that and more like, um, you know, a cultivated uh, uh, garden um, that's growing. There's organic connections there that though you see a tree way over here and a plant way over here, that there's a, a root system uh, that is they're 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 being nourished by the spirit, um, and then the uh, they're they're connected. Uh, even though uh, sometimes we don't see that on the surface, you know, a canonical approach generally conceived is thinking about some of those interconnections, be they theological, historical, or uh, literary. Yeah, so on some of the historical critical stuff, I mean, there is a sense in which I, I have a lot of personal issues with that, because I think, um, I mean, I've sometimes called it a canonic hermeneutic. It's sort of just emptying all the theological, spiritual. That's not always the case. Uh, and in fact, there are some, you know, there's some good things we can draw from historical critical studies, maybe more historical grammatical, because there's a little bit more of a recognition of the relationship uh, and things like that uh, of the books. But what are, what are some things that you'd say, uh, let's not just dump all over historical critical and just kick it out and just say that it's not important. What are some, some good things we can draw from it, even as we critique it as heavily as I think both of both you and I do in many ways. Um, right. Uh, rejection for as an evangelical or rejection of uh, the um, exclusion of the supernatural as a part of the interpretive process, um, a, um, a uh, forefronting of uh, incoherence or um, uh, contradictory diversity. Uh, but once you move uh, past that, um, those essentially either methodological or confessional uh, assumptions or commitments, then I think a uh, focus on the final form is not all historical uh, because there's uh, many places where uh, this, the, the study of history and historical understanding of uh, the text itself and then also the way in which um, text formed into collections and then the process of uh, uh, passing things along um, is all part of a historical study that is required for a focus on the final form. And then also too, as if, if you're interested in the author's textual intention, in many ways, this is a uh, profoundly historical task as we're mm -hmm. asking, uh, what, does, what do these texts mean on their own terms, uh, even as they're in relationship uh, to other texts and historical social locations, and also as they speak of uh, the one true God? We're still th thinking in those terms. Uh, and then canon studies more broadly, of course, is drawing upon some of the results of, of textual uh, criticism and historical criticism uh, for a focus on the final form. The issue is one of uh, proportion. Um, mm -hmm. So thinking about not that uh, historical background information is relevant, uh, for example, but the way in which it's relevant. Um, mm -hmm. So 
um, thinking about the um, proper sense of proportion. Um, Childs and Sides talk about, um, and uh, Mark Ginolette's book uh, does a good job of, of grappling with this question as well, uh, thinking about the depth dimension of the scriptures uh, in the canon. So if I don't know that the um, epistles were written first, for example, in the New Testament, I'm not going to under, or I'm not going to catch the significance of the fact that the Gospels begin the uh, New Testament. It's out of chronological order, um, so that there's there's some other ordering principle at work than strictly chronology. So even just that simple, I know that uh, you know Galatians is one of the first epistles written, and the New Testament doesn't begin with Galatians. And so what impact? does it have on me as a reader and a thinker of the big picture of the New Testament that the fourfold gospel collection comes first? Um, so that historical study, that depth dimension allows me to consider the impact of the final form of the canon, the collection. What impact does this sub-collection have on the way that I understand gospel and epistle? And so we could say the same thing, uh, we'll get into some more of the synoptic weeds here, but if I know that Mark or, you know, if I have an idea that Mark is Mark and priority was written first. And then I'm thinking about the relationship between Matthew and Luke and John and the fourfold witness as a whole, it allows me a little bit of depth dimension to say, what does the final canonical form of this collection have um, there? And then also within a, a single composition, recognizing that an author has used sources and that, um, that has used rhetorical techniques, for example, um, has used metaphors um, that we need to think carefully about historically, that will help me, uh, give me just a, set, a depth dimension that will allow me to see the perspective uh, that the final form of a book gives me and then the final form of a uh, collection. And I think those, if, if you think about it in those ways, then that is something that the final form of the text gives you even in the midst of uh, text critical diversity within a book or uh, different uh, uh, variations and orderings that you can still see the effect of grouping uh, even though there is um, differences in some of the minor differences and sometimes major differences between uh, ordering traditions. So I think that's something uh, that is a important area of research in kids yeah. as well. Yeah. So as you, as you're reflecting on watching, uh, did you, were you able to watch all the Wycliffe symposium? I think it was like four and a half yeah. hours. Mm -hmm. So you got to, you got to, I had Madison on about 20 minutes after she finished. So uh, it was either, she basically was like, I'm, I've already been talking about it. I might as well just knock yeah. it out. Uh, but I'm sure she was worn out from it, but you've had now a week or so, you know, after watching it, uh, what were some of the things you took away from that just in terms of them, you know, and I'm, I'm going to put a link to this in the show notes to the, to the video on YouTube, but what were some of your just kind of initial thoughts as you thought through them talking about the history of TIS and the death of the Brazos series. And uh, you and I talked about this a little bit. Um, that was so sad. Yeah. I think Dave Nelson at one point was like, it's the, you know, the darkest point of my career or something, you know? Um, but you know, for me, uh, I asked you a question and now I'm, now I'm talking without letting you answer, but um, I've been doing that a lot lately on these episodes. I'd apologize to. Well, you've been uh, doing this a lot in life. Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> this is you. It's accurate. Yeah, this it's is you and my and you in my office. Um, you know, I was so excited about that series 
when I came across it, you know, I wasn't really paying attention quite yet when it, when it launched, but I was really excited about it. And I was very quickly stunned by the type of diversity that was in there. You've got like Peter Lightheart's first and second Kings. It's like, Whoa, this is, this is awesome. And then others, it was kind of like a little, felt a little underwhelming. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that they drew out was this idea that, you know, there was a certain type of TIS that they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Reno that said, basically, um, you know, uh, authors were telling me they had no, actually no clue what they were supposed to be doing. So there's just no controls or handles on it. Um, so what are some, what were your, some of your thoughts on that as somebody who, again, you're, you're more on the biblical study side, uh, in good, in, in the best ways. I sometimes use that pejoratively, uh, but not when I talk to, to Chet Spellman. Um, but uh, what, what are some of the things you, you're just thinking about of, of, yeah, I can see why that failed miserably. Uh, and uh, I can see the fruits of what could have happened or what could happen. What were some of your thoughts on that as you listened? Um, yeah, I mean, the first thought that I had was that Madison's production technology was like light years away. Uh, just backlit. Everything. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, but I thought the conversation was great. Uh, very interesting. Uh, helpful to see, you know, just on a, a practical side, the um, kind of behind the scenes of what it takes to, I mean, you have insight into this as well, just what it takes to uh, launch a project or a commentary series and then to keep it going. Um, I mean, I felt for the um, editors as part of the issue, which um, was that, you know, getting people to submit their manuscripts, uh, but also as is clearly connected to kind of not only a waning of personal interest on contributors parts or a lack of uh, methodological controls as to like, what am I supposed to be doing in this series, but also perhaps a, the moment, uh, the decade that this was um, really starting to be a conversation in the Academy uh, was passing. And I wouldn't say passing, but perhaps uh, morphing into something else so that, either the commentary series was going to continue that original idea for what they were doing, or it would kind of respond to where the conversation was. Um, uh, so I think both of those things were, were happening. Um, I thought that what we talked about earlier, there was very clear uh, that one principle of a movement away from a historical uh, critical paradigm or business as usual as um, the um, the project uh, thesis is for the whole series. I thought that that's definitely displayed in the series as a a movement away from one particular paradigm. Then the question returns as to what do we mean um, when we talk about theological interpretation. Um, so I thought that that kind of came through. I was very fascinated by and appreciated each individual person on the panel as they were talking about what is it like to write a commentary on judges um, and mm -hmm. what role does literary, the literary structure have in this? What role does, I appreciated her emphasis on um, the, the proclaimed word. How does this relate? And that connects to the context of the churches. Um, so, and then also thinking about but other commentaries like Christopher Seitz on Colossians is taking a, a canonical approach, which again was still in line with the series, uh, but very different than the commentary that took the fourfold method and applied it to a book. Um, so you had this total range of, um, of approaches that I think is one of the things that hampered it. Um, mm -hmm. 
But I did think the controlling question that was prompted in my mind reading that was this, the going back to the core that we kept circling around in there, I say we, I was observing, <laughs> I was watching <laughs> online. Um, uh, the contributors as they're thinking about it, and then this whole discussion keeps circling back around to this question of what makes theological interpretation theological. So from the biblical studies side, I think, or from the, the uh, systematic theology or um, uh, other disciplines, the question is what makes interpretation theological from the biblical studies angle, I think it's actually what makes theological interpretation interpretation, like what you're doing something other than reading the biblical text and seeking to explain what it means. And so I think that goes back to the question of definition. And so I was thinking, even as we were uh, preparing for this, you, you never give me uh, what you want to talk about. Um, so it always makes me nervous. So I was uh, doing a little uh, uh, I don't like surprises. Yeah, I, I've invited you on about eight times. And you're always like, if you don't give me enough notice or enough what of a list. Yeah. The, so I, I just said, you already watched this and you already know this stuff. So that's your outline. So I'm thankful. Uh, but even just thinking about back to uh, when the conversation between uh, figures like Kevin Van Hooser, Stephen Fowle, uh, A.K. Adams, uh, and Francis Watson, uh, kind of at the beginning of some of these uh, current iteration uh, that perhaps is coming to an end or, or morphing into something else. But Dan Trier's uh, book, Introducing Theological Interpretation, uh, gave a series of things that united theological interpreters and uh, divided them, essentially. And I saw a lot of the same things in the discussion from last week of what are some of the issues that uh, the family resemblance between theological interpreters um, so in, in, in my mind, it's all about how they're answering the question, what, what is it that makes theological interpretation different than historical criticism, for example, but more importantly, more pressingly, what makes theological interpretation theolo theological? So mm -hmm. I think one of the big answers from the whole conversation is the location of the interpreter, uh, be that a social location, uh, or a theological location. So interpretation done within the church is theological interpretation. So that could look like <laughs> anything, but if it's done within the church or for the church, uh, or really within the church is the location of the interpreter. And then another uh, main answer to that question is what makes theological interpretation theological is the aims of the interpreter. So like love, like this Augustan idea of that your reading promotes uh, love of neighbor and love of God, uh, or that your interpretation speaks of God. Uh, that's what makes it theological. Uh, or the intellectual and theological virtues. Um, so Stephen Fowle has a nice, uh, uh, I forget what it's called, a companion to theological interpretation. And he starts with the theology of scripture, moves to a critique of general hermeneutics, and then focuses on uh, the aims of interpretation of the intellectual and theological virtues, love, forgiveness, things like that. And that's part of what makes interpretation theological. And I think the other major thing is the nature of the text. So moving from interpreter to the interpreted, the nature of the text as divinely inspired. So this is one way to get at this. This uh, interpretation is theological 
because of the dogmatic location, uh, as John Webster says, of the Bible, the, mm-hmm. the function of the scriptures in the divine economy. Um, so they're divinely inspired scriptures. Therefore, reading it is an act of theological interpretation. And I think all of those uh, impulses are helpful. And uh, at home for an evangelical, I think a, a compositional or canonical approach to reading um, is also in that orbit, because this would be the answer to what makes theological interpretation theological is not only the location, aims, and nature of the text, but the fact that, uh, or the meaning of the text is theological. So it's theological because the text we are reading makes theological claims. Mm -hmm. Uh, It speaks of God. Um, It's making uh, claims about who God is in and of himself. It's talking about his attributes so that if you were a biblical studies exegete and you said, I'm just reading the text and I'm going to punt any theological questions. So having a conversation with a biblical scholar, reading Hebrews 1, you say, well, what does this, the question comes, what does the prologue of Hebrews uh, teach us about who the son is. And it's like, I heard a biblical scholar punt and say, oh, well, you know, that's, you know, that's a question for the theologians. We're just <laughs> trying to read the text. But if the text is speaking of the being of God, that the, the son is the exact imprint of his nature, then it's the text itself is pointing us to uh, ontological claims. Um, so to pull our whole conversation kind of full circle, I think this textual and canonical focus uh, on the meaning of a theological text, I think it can account for the, one, the economic unfolding of God's actions uh, in the missions of the Son and Spirit in redemptive history, but it can also account for the ontological realities uh, that arise from studying that economy. Uh, And also, it arises from uh, direct discourse within uh, the special written revelation. So thinking about, um, I mean, that's my favorite answer to what makes theological interpretation theological is that we're interpreting a theological text. Yep. So that pushes back against the exegete or biblical theologian that says, I'm just reading the text. So I'm not going to get into uh, anything that smacks of metaphysics um, or ontological claims but also pushes back on the theologian that's only doing um, a superficial Bible doctrine survey. Uh, I'm looking for a text to help me think through something else. I actually value that as an evangelical uh, because I do care about what the Bible says uh, and how our actions can accord with the scriptures. Uh, But I also want to value the study of the scriptures on its own terms and as an end unto itself. Um, so, um, I think, uh, in my, the way that I'm thinking about a canonical approach is one that pulls together some of those, um, things, but I also recognize that that's a particular brand of the canonical approach that's informed by my understanding of the composition of text and evangelical presuppositions and, uh, the way that, you know, I've kind of, uh, come at those. And yeah. so I see a family resemblance between that kind of approach in, you know, things that you're interested in, things, you know, the resourcement movement, um, some of those things. Uh, Sometimes there's different uh, emphases, of course, Um, but 
as I said, I think we talked about a few minutes ago, if we're continuing to study the canonical text, we're going to keep coming back to issues of economy and ontology uh, because we're studying a history of redemption in which God speaks. Right. So if you could, if you could, if there was a definition of TIS that you could get behind and say, I am a member of the theological interpretation school, is the German word, um, which is the same as the English word, basically. Uh, what kind of definition would you want to give? You know, there's a hundred different definitions. Some are a little bit more reader and community centered. Some of them are more kind of ontological. This is what scripture is. Therefore, this is how I read it. Yeah. Sounds like you're maybe leaning a little bit more toward that, but what would be a, a good kind of one or two sentence definition that you could say, that's the kind of TIS I'm behind. I didn't prep you for that at all. Oh so man. That's... See, this is what I was talking about. Like, <laughs> give me something. Um, I know you yeah. thought about it. I, yeah. I really think um, one that includes some of the aims, the location, the social and theological location uh, from within the church and for the church, uh, the aims and uh, of the interpreter and nature of the text Right. Uh, theology of the text. But I mean, I would, I would probably gravitate towards what I think is most fruitful is the theological interpretation as the interpretation, as the close, uh, faithful reading of a theological text. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would, uh, in that, in that particular, the first iteration of that discussion, that would swing me towards, uh, like Van Hooser and Trier, mm-hmm. um, and then the way where I would want to uh, or where I have um, uh, moved towards that is thinking about book level meaning, thinking about intertextuality, thinking about um, the things that the final form of the text asks me to do and requires mm-hmm. me to do to understand it. Um, I do have uh, there's a this is from Seitz's character of Christian scripture. He says this is one of his definitions of the canonical approach. He's always saying, like, I'm not going to define the canonical approach. And then he gives <laughs> little definitions. Um, he says, the canonical approach will always have as its chief task the theological interpretation of the plain sense witness of two testaments. And that task is unending. Hmm. Um, so I think, obviously, that leaves some questions of, like, what does that actually mean um, up in the air uh, by all those terms? But as a kind of orientation, I think that's a helpful um, thing. Sites, uh, Child says something similar of, uh, you know, theologians need to be more biblical, biblical scholars need to be more theological and get on with the task, right? right. right. Just, I think some of this happens. Oh, right. That was one of the things that I was, see, if you would let me uh, prepare, <laughs> I would have said this on, on right. but didn't I say that I was going to circle back around to Academy versus church? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think that um, in the Academy, this conversation will by necessity uh, be like this thinking about mm-hmm. what's the relationship between this discipline and that discipline. But I think in the churches, in the pulpit, um, you have to be a theological interpreter um, so it, it happens, where does this happen? Like, uh, cause we're always looking for this perfect synthesis. And I think that perfect synthesis is, uh, in, in the proclamation of the word. Um, 
uh, in the counseling moment, in the actual, um, uh, in the churches. Um, so the, the preaching of the word requires all of these disciplines as the uh, pastoral ministry is what brings these together. And yeah. it, that might be a more forceful claim. I might be saying the academy is not capable of this, um, uh, but the, uh, that this, this naturally, organically is supposed to come together uh, in the context of a ministry of the word, uh, but the academy can certainly uh, configure itself such that it, um, it does, the, you know, f uh, funds this and ministers an academic ministry uh, that uh, equips people to do this. Uh, and then, of course, you know, the reverse, uh, the, the, the backfill into the academy from the church and interpreters, social locations. I think that's important as well. Yeah, I was thinking it, it might be Steinmetz's article where he talks about the fact that like sort of the mere critical, uh, uh, historical critical sort of academic discussion. He was like, it literally doesn't work because partially what you said, you know, you, you can't read the Bible and, and not read theology. It's just, it's impo literally impossible to do. But like, uh, is it, is it Steinmetz? You can correct me. You probably, you probably know this. But I'm trying to think, is, is he the one that says basically like, this doesn't work in the church. Like critical, critical stuff doesn't work in the church. If you're not talking about God, like you can't preach a sermon about, you know, the uh, noun declension in right. Romans two for 45 minutes. I think it's Steinmetz that brings that up, but that's a good point. Like part of, I think what's so much coming out of the TIS movement is this desire in the church. And you, you can't, yeah. yeah, you can't preach and disciple people without talking about God and what the Bible's claims are. Right. So, all right. Well, I think we, uh, I think we have, uh, I think we've dragged, as you say, dragged the horse out uh, of the out out of the barn or whatever, and and started uh, the dead horse and started kicking it. Uh, but I think this was helpful just to think through some of these uh, issues of theology and, and canon. And it seems like, um, as we sort of move forward as evangelicals doing, uh, you know, biblical interpretation and theology, I am encouraged. And I and Madison, I talked about this, kind of encouraged about the fact that whatever is kind of left of TIS does seem to be sort of deeply rooted in uh, real textual engagement. And so if that's what it is, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it. And so maybe we'll bring some of you uh, biblical studies people uh, along with us as we do our theology. Yeah, I think that's a good way to, uh, a good way to articulate the hope uh, for the work that was done under yeah. the banner of theological interpretation of the scripture. Yeah, I'll let you, let, you let that troll of dragging you biblical studies people uh, go by that. I'm proud of that. That was good. Uh, I love you, Brandon. I think God has a wonderful plan for your life. I think we'll end on that. Thanks, Chad. <laughs>